Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, a.k.a. Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and a very warm welcome to episode 66, which is the first episode of the new year 2022. Uh, This episode is the second part of my conversation with George and Summer from the Research Design and Action Group Material Cultures. Uh, This conversation was recorded back at the beginning of November 2021, and it got parked on a shelf while some other things happened. But here it is now for you. Um, Before we get going, there is a few things to say. Uh, First of all, Adrian Lehman, who is our guest on episode number nine. He is a roundwood timber framer and a a very nice chap. Uh, He has a whole series of courses coming up. Uh, where you can go and learn how to build a crock frame, how to do roundwood timber framing joints, and all in a very, very lovely location uh, in Gloucester. There is a link to the show notes. Um, I think some the, the courses are running over the summer, and I think the first one is already sold out. So get on it. Uh, second, Spotify. Did you hear that the Spotify CEO has invested $100 million dollars in Helsing AI, uh, which make AI drones for automated killing. Great, huh? Uh, so I would say that almost every musician is creating music to bring people together, and AI killing drone machines is the opposite of that. Um, so I have just cancelled my subscription. Um, I have shifted over to Apple Music, and I'm sure that there's terrible things with Apple um i don't think they're on the same scale as ai war machines but uh please feel free to email me and tell me and i the whole uh the whole transition was pretty seamless because i used an app called songshift uh which just brought across all my albums and playlists uh okay rant section over um so this week i have had some glorious feedback from listeners um, who have been influenced uh, by what they've heard on the podcast. And I just want to say it truly makes my day to hear that the podcast is helpful or just simply it's entertained you. Um, one bit of feedback said the phrase, thank you for being you. 
And I thought that was just genuinely the nicest thing that anyone could say to me. Um, and so I wanted to pass that on to you, all of the building sustainability family. Thank you for being you. Um, and a, an extra special big thank you goes to Kate Brown, um, who created a fantastic LinkedIn post uh, saying some just really lovely things about the podcast uh, and linking to some of her favourite episodes and generally advertising it so well to all of her followers. Um, and I could see from the comments that it got a whole load of new listeners uh, interested uh, and clicking on the, the link. So thank you so much, Kate. That is really, really appreciated and very, very lovely of you. Um, and that kind of brings me on nicely on to my New Year's resolution. Uh, sorry, I'm talking a lot today. It's nearly over. Don't worry. Uh, in November 2021, we hit 100,000 downloads, uh, which was a nice big milestone. Um, and my resolution uh, for 2022 is to do everything possible to get us up to the 200,000 downloads by the end of 2022. And it's a fairly big step up. Uh, it took two and a half years to get to 100,000. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to throw everything at it. And well, posts like Kate's will, will definitely help if everyone did one of those. I mean, we would be halfway there already. OK. Final things. Patreon. Uh, we've got a few new Patreon supporters, uh, which are Kate Brown. Yes, Kate Brown. You are getting all the thanks this month. Uh, Kate will be receiving a spoon that I will carve her and then post it to her uh, sometime soon. There's a few people in the waiting list and I will get to them soon. Also, Caroline Nicolay uh, increased her support uh, and that helps just no end. Thank you, Caroline. What lovely folk you are. Um, so if you did want to support the podcast and you'll get nine hours of bonus chat, um, as well as access to various little bits and bobs, uh, head over to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. You are my hero. Okay, so finally, this episode, uh, as I said, recorded way back in November, um, the Insulate Britain interview, which I'm sure you've seen by now, had just happened. Uh, we talk a little bit about that. Uh, if you haven't seen that, then there's a link in the show notes. This episode is mostly Summer talking as we're talking about her project, uh, but you do get a little bit of the wonderful George at the end. Okay, that's it. I'm back at the end. Enjoy the episode. <laughs> So we were commissioned alongside Arup, uh, the engineering practice, to work on a research project for York and North Yorkshire LEP and the North East and Yorkshire Energy Hub. So it's a jointly funded piece of research. A LEP is a local enterprise partnership. Yeah, and so they work with and represent the different portions of the region, let's say. But they, they gave us as a scope the whole of the North East and the whole of Yorkshire as our study. And then the research, because it sort of sits within government and and they work with local authorities, um, has a kind of very exciting reach, I think. You know, it's very unusual to be, for a, a research project like the one we undertook, to be funded through local authorities in this way. 
um, and for it then to have the potential to influence local authority policy is really exciting. Um, a lot of the research that we've done in the past has been funded by us or through institutions we work with um, or kind of through projects that we take as an opportunity to develop research. But for the research to be sought for the sake of the research itself was really great. And that they they were looking essentially for a, a piece of work which established the opportunity for its transition to a circular and bio-based construction economy in the region which builds on lots of work which they've already done and funded, looking at the prevalence of hemp growing and processing in, in places like Yorkshire and, and some fairly uh, reasonably established good development work and construction work um, already going on in the, in the region as a whole. And the potential, I suppose, for a bio-based construction industry to, to fill the gaps in lots of the post-industrialised places within the region, you know, places that have, suffer quite extreme decline over the 20th century but where there is a big construction skills gap which has the potential to be filled um, through lots of different things you know to be with like growing materials and processing them or you know skills training and using using them in buildings and stuff like that great and am i right in thinking that um the the councils up there are sort of they're eager to be sort of leading the way yeah they're it's really exciting um they as a region, well, Yorkshire wants to get to net zero before everyone else. Brilliant. <laughs> um, so they've got their targets at 2030. Um, and I think, look, you know, tens of the different local authorities in, in the region as a whole have set those targets. You know, there's some that are looking at 2030 and a bit later. But generally speaking, there's a lot of will, like re- will within the region for change. And we're really excited now to see what happened with the recommendations we made in the, in the document because... There, there's a kind of mixed bag of things that should really happen at national level, but they still have agency at local level, I think, at regional level. And, it, and it, we're hoping that they take take that forward now and that there's an opportunity for some things to happen, which maybe demonstrates to the rest of the country how things should be done. And maybe that's what triggers us changing our policies and regulations rather than the other way around, which, of course, it should be. Yeah, you'd, you'd hope so. Yeah, what was the what did you find in your research? Oh, you've got to read it, Jeffrey. Oh uh, well, <laughs> you can give me the executive summary. <laughs> I'll give you the summary. Uh, well, if anyone wants to read it, it is handily available online. I'll put a link in the show notes so everyone should go and read it. What did we find? We found lots of exciting things. We, you know, part of the way we did the project was um, engaging with lo- loads of stakeholders. So we interviewed, you know, tens of people. You know. And we talked to them about work they were already doing and potential for them to upscale. And I think we found that there's lots of exciting work already happening, but it needs quite a lot. It needs support to grow. So there's loads of potential already in the region because they've got established practices and they've got will. Um, we also did an analysis. The work we did with Arab was looking at a comparative study of the embodied carbon of a new build house. So we took as our model a classic two-storey, three-bedroom house designed and built by a developer unnamed, um, kind of common model across the UK. And we looked at what they might be building their buildings with and what the embodied carbon of that would be. So it's a kind it was a it's a slightly it's a limited carbon analysis because we don't have loads of information. So we we just looked at a the the superstructure, so the structure above the ground. In, in terms of what those materials uh, were and what their embodied carbon was. So we looked at 
structure, insulation and lining of a house above the ground, which obviously eliminates the foundations, which we know are really problematic. But what we chose to do was look at materials that are being used now and materials which they could be substituted with in the immediate future. So it will be a quick industry change, which doesn't really require reskilling people and loads of re-education. So what would be an easy win, basically, for loads of contractors and developers and clients to, to take on, like to, to, to move forward with? Um, so we looked at the superstructure of a, of a house like that, and then we designed an alternative model, exactly the same envelope and spatial arrangement, but with a bio-based wall build-up using materials which you could get within the region or could be processed within the region or maybe could be drawn from materials within the region that might be processed elsewhere, basically working with a timber frame and a hemp bat and a lining board, which is one that we mentioned earlier, which is a kind of lime and hemp lining board being developed by a company called Adaptivate. And there was, these are just examples, essentially, of other bio-based materials you could pick. They're not like necessarily suggestions, but they are mm-hmm. what we chose to make a kind of comparative analysis of with the conventional business as usual house with. So we just basically looked at the different embodied carbon of those two buildings and found that the bio-based version of the same house sequesters so much more carbon and essentially the impact of building all of the new build housing that the region anticipates building in the next 15 years using bio-based materials instead could save them something like 2.88 megatons. So a huge amount of carbon which you know usually are talked about in terms of like, what savings can we make with operational energy and mm-hmm. other things you know what, what what if we all stop eating meat you know there obviously there are things to address in society and culture but there are also things that we could be doing with materials and it's really just a question of specifying things differently because the more architects that specify these things the more they'll become mainstream and lots of the reasons that they're not commonplace is because they're maybe not understood properly and they're not specified properly or um, people don't really understand the immediate benefits and what we tried to do in the report was be like well they make this much money (laughs) for the economy and they save me this much carbon and they could generate loads of jobs so like what's not to like you know yeah win 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 and is that so you said the saving uh, a big number of of tons of CO2 Uh, is that a saving on what would be emitted, or is that, or is that a sequestration? Is that the right word? Sequestration. It's a net saving, so, so it would be both. Okay. I think it. Right. I have to go have to check my numbers, but I think the, the figures are. Uh, we we looked at them both in relative in terms of embodied carbon and then biogenic carbon, but then we also looked at net, the kind of the net embodied carbon gain, and mm-hmm. uh, or loss rather. And so it's like if these homes were built with conventional materials, they might emit this much carbon. And if we were built this alternative pallet, they would sequester this much carbon. And obviously there's loads of variables in that. And so we we didn't look, for example, beyond um, what's called A3. So the way you measure embodied carbon, there are lots of stages from a material being drawn from the landscape to being taken to a factory and processed, to being transported to another place, to be shipped and then shipped to a site and then installed on site. And our analysis was kind of abstract, so we because we didn't have sites and we didn't have, um, yeah, any of the kind of follow-on information about like who might build that and what their experience would be and how far they come from work to whatever. So we we stopped our analysis at the gate, the factory gate, essentially. So um, 
kind of cradle to gate analysis, which looks at where the materials come from and then what, how they're processed and when they get shipped. And then from the point that they leave the gates, it's all kind of, all of those things would obviously have a big impact on how much the carbon yeah. impact of these buildings, but it gives you an indication, I think, of like just a dramatic effect of building with something which is sequestering carbon. It's just very straightforward. You know, you always make a gain because you have a considerable amount of biogenic carbon in your, in your built fabric. Excellent. Um, there was there was a great statistic that was it for every one one house you built. Hang on, I I should get used to this statistic. <laughs> for every one house built, um, yes, that, that was a really good and kind of clear cut representation. I think the the amount of carbon <laughs> carbon is like kind of the, the amount of representative embodied carbon saved by building a house bio-based materials is equivalent to the amount of energy that's expended the operational energy expended by four british homes in a year so wow yeah it feels significant in those terms when you think about you know just how many households are sustained and also the kind of gain that we could make as a society for our operational energy in transitioning our material palette to these different materials well you sort of mentioned the uh you know you've you've looked at the emission uh, up to sort of cradle to gate um and it seems like a lot of the the emissions from from gate onwards are sort of a lot down to skills and you know, the education or the you know commitment i guess of of those of sort of building the houses did you look at kind of what was needed you know what was lacking maybe to to sort of uh, make those those better and and well, best. Yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting sets of conversations we had. Although I should clarify a bit. It's not, it's also, it, skills play a part in the embodied carbon footprint of the whole building insofar as different levels of mechanisation of the processes would have an impact. You know, it makes a difference if those homes were built using cranes or if they were being built off the ground using scaffolding. And those things have an impact. And so the, the training of of builders in terms of the way they go about building has an impact in that in those terms um, but where skills play is a really important part i think in the whole construction industry kind of decarbonizing is a that m- most of the skills colleges we spoke to were saying well we'd be really interested to teach our students these other materials that you talk about but there's not any interest and so we can't afford to run those cl- those classes you know we need 12 students or 18 students to sign up before we can afford to pay a tutor and so no one's signing up so we're not doing it and those things just felt like really obvious places for some funding to slot in and make a huge change because there is evidence that students are interested but you know they can't self the schools can't self-fund those courses and they were also saying well actually we could just start every every cohort of students with a, a lecture about sustainability and construction because maybe they don't know the impact of it and the, the opportunities they have to make change. And that just also feels like a really kind of a good place to start. And then it could have, you imagine, a, a kind of generation of skilled people educated from the beginning about the impact of what they do on the environment. It's just a totally different way of framing con- the construction industry. And those felt um, really important. But then there's also, I think, an idea of, like 
kind of there are there are problems about like blame <laughs> like whose fault is it really is it the guy who's like being taught how to pour foundations it's, it's not really you know there's also like there's an educational job there about upskilling people so they have longevity for their careers and they can work on all sorts of building sites but it's also the construction site managers and it's also the people that run the construction companies and it's also the developers and all the way along the chain of education and management actually there should be new new syllabi like new curriculum that people can take and it they shouldn't be optional actually um and and all of those things feel like things that the citb should be really the construction industry training board should be taking on and being responsible for because at a local level again uh, the students want to take courses which are certified and the certification comes from a national body. And it always comes down to this, you know, whether we're talking about insurances or mortgages or whatever. It's like there's like local issues being blocked at a national level by something. And it yeah, translates across all of the different elements of the construction industry. Yeah. I've, I find it really interesting that you said that, yeah, they would offer it if there's a demand. Because, uh, I mean, I receive, I would say it's about an email a week from someone saying how do i get into natural building uh and i don't have a good answer for them at the moment uh and it you know it sort of seems chicken and egg doesn't it like they need to offer the courses yeah. so that yeah i i haven't seen anyone even sort of say we're going to run this course um because if i had i would have been shouting about it uh and you know pointing all those people it feels like a lot with natural materials though there are people there are a lot of interest in working with them is from people that are experienced builders already or looking for a career change that people are interested in them for the benefits that they bring to society and to building as a gen- in, in mm-hmm. culture but if you take your kind of average 17 18 year old student who's looking to get a job in, in, and be trained in the construction industry they may not be informed about the options that are out there but they want to get they want to be skilled and to have diverse and interesting careers and to get jobs at the end of them. And at the moment, at the end of your process of education, there aren't the jobs in those industries which represent like offer opportunities for people that are particularly skilled with working with hemp, for example. And so, yeah, the, <laughs> the, it's, it's like so many chickens and so many mm-hmm. eggs. They all need to be, all those problems need to be addressed at the same time. So one of the things that would be like that Yorkshire or the North East could do is take that on and look at changing a curriculum at skills college doing a demonstrator project which offers those students apprenticeship opportunities and then building a really big large-scale development which gets that cohort of students jobs when they graduate you don't do all those things at the same time they won't be skilled and ready for the work environment but they also won't have anywhere to go when they leave school but if those things don't all happen don't all happen simultaneously it just won't get traction but it, it working successfully once, I think, would would demonstrate the impact it could have across the whole country. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk uh, hemp because you've you've mentioned it a lot, and you've you've said it's you know it's not the only material, um, but it is an interesting material. Um, I think sort of all over, like how it's grown, how it's used. I mean, what's yeah, why is it sort of a, a good material for you to to use as the sort of the example the material that that you were sort of suggesting could be a bio based uh, alternative? And one of the joys about talking about hemp is that it's uh, it's such a straightforward win. You know, there's there are so many advantages to working with it actually that it's it feels 
always like a good, a good answer to a problem. Um, so as a plant, there are lots of reasons that it would be good to grow hemp. Uh, it's very resilient and it tends to be a you get a, a reasonably good crop and a successful yield from your land without needing to apply pesticides. So that's like that's a good win. Great. Yeah. So yeah, a really good win. So um, Nick Vos, who farms in Yorkshire, uh, East Yorkshire hemp, he was telling us that they, you know they get loads more birds and insects than he ever used to uh, remember when he was looking at other crops they were farming and the place where they farm hemp. They just have so much more biodiversity and there's loads of evidence for that because you're just not applying pesticides. So all the way up the kind of uh, the food chain, you get loads more animals benefiting from what's well, effectively still a monoculture crop, but it's just a better monoculture crop in that you're not kind of I don't know, limiting other, other biodiversity around it. And then the roots of the hemp plant are really deep and so it's very good at rehabilitating soil so as a crop option it's a good one kind of whether you're using it for construction or not because there's loads of really valuable things you can draw from the plant like the fiber and the seeds and things Mm. like that and its uses is uh, like the amount of uses from one plant is is a ridiculous list isn't it like the the bit we're using i I couldn't enumerate them yeah we're using the little tiny leftover stump essentially for building yeah Yeah, it's not we're we're essentially using what you would consider to be the waste byproduct of of making really valuable fibre for clothing or making or generating the oil, which is currently not possible in the UK because it's legislated against. But, um, but yeah, it's a burgeoning hemp industry is making millions and billions of pounds not from making ship. <laughs> it's not it's not through the construction industry that the value is, is usually mm-hmm. gained. But in the UK, because it, it's not possible um, to process your seeds into oil and sell them here, that's is one of the major uses now um although i mean it has been historically things like horse bedding and stuff like that um but yeah the woody stalky bit of the plant um which is the shiv from the hemp you can mix it up with uh lime and you make this really great like wonder product which is insulating it's got really high thermal mass uh, looks very beautiful uh, depending on the different ways you could use it you can like cast it in situ and it has this kind of striation like rammed earth does and it has these beautiful stripes all the way up the wall um or you can use it in block form which is kind of handy and um has different benefits um but yeah the thermal mass and how insulating it is and then the fact that it's mainly plant-based means it's got really good biogenic carbon values it sequesters loads of carbon so generally speaking it's wonderful. <laughs> and then the fact that you, you might bind it with lime makes it very resistant to mould and um, attack from pests and also f- spread of flame. It makes it very resilient to um, to catching fire. <laughs> so in the, and it's pairing it with timber, which often that's usually the way that you might build your structural frame because it's just an insulating material. So you would either embed a structural timber frame within it or will sit your hempcrete between bits of timber. Um, that pairing of the lime and hemp with the wood protects the wood as well. And so there's loads of kind of consequential benefits to your primary structure, which then it's also protected from mould and, and rot and fire. So, yeah, there's really no reason not to use it <laughs> <laughs> as far as we've found so far. And there are other like products you can make with hemp, like um, hemp fibre insulation, which has been developed to be manufactured in the UK. 
and uh, cladding materials using the fibre as well. Yeah. And the dust, so the waste stream from the um, processing the hemp makes all this dust, which you can use and other stuff too. So lots of good uses. Um, but at the moment, it just seems like a, a great answer to the problem of how to insulate the home. Yeah. Well. And there's a sort of a little bit of an underlying stigma, I think, attached to it. Yeah. And there was, I saw a guy stand up and do a, a very quick talk. At a, it was a land workers event. And he was, you know, selling the, selling the, the benefits of hemp. I think he was a house builder. And at the end of the, the sort of his speech, he said, and it's all built with cannabis. Yeah. And I just sort of put my head in my hands and thought, oh, well, that's, that's not really the, uh, or what we're trying to, trying to sell here. Do you, do you see much of a sort of resistance because of that? It always gets mentioned. Mm. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, but I suppose we tend to work in it's one of the things about natural materials at the moment the construction industry and the use of them is reasonably small scale so often the conversations we're having with the, you know people like yourself or like other um, natural builders and like construction experts is like it's, it's understood now that the THC content of the hemp that's cultivated for construction is so low it's not really the same thing but it does look the same <laughs> as a plant so obviously it's understandable i think that there's uh still confusion there and i suppose there's always the potential for bias but we're not growing hemp we don't we don't come up against that yeah ourselves you know we work with people that do grow it and they also tend to be growing it now in places where they have established but that's what they do um i suppose what we where that becomes an issue i think is where we're looking to promote that farmers take it on as a rotational crop in place of things like wheat uh, or between wheat, where it's really good actually for it really increases wheat yield values if you um, slot a hemp crop in between. Um, as in you know, sort of the, grow a field of wheat, then grow a field of hemp. Exactly. Then, okay. And then grow a field of wheat again. You're, 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 because you need to rotate anyway, um, crops and kind of mixed and rotational um, farming techniques. Uh, I think it's. I think it. I know it to be evidenced that wheat yields improve after a season of hemp, um, and so we're trying to promote that more hemp is grown. And one of the ways of doing that without suddenly like uh, changing the way that the landscape is used is to accommodate that alongside arable farming, which already exists. But you know, if you want to talk to a farmer that's always grown, I don't know, sugar beet and wheat or whatever, it, they might not be. Um, knowledgeable about the difference between different species like varieties of cannabis plant and that one of them is great for construction but not so great for smoking is something that maybe still needs to be dealt with mm-hmm. um but yeah, we're not really like part of those conversations at the moment we'll be back after a quick break hey there i'm mick from the mick and pat show that's right and i'm pat looking for a podcast that's like catching up with the old friends well you're in luck We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. In your your study... um yeah, where you were looking at using hemp bat for insulation. Uh, I mean, how much, how much 
production would there need to be? Um, do you have an idea of, you know, if we, would it take all the fields in uh, Yorkshire? Is it? That is one of the things we looked at and we looked at what the land use implications would be of all of the materials that we specified in the bio-based house. Um, and it was really pleasing, actually, to see that the implications, again, within a kind of con- constrained proposed sample set. So we were looking at what is the housing need of the region of the North East and Yorkshire as a whole? How many homes do they plan to build over the next 15 years? And what are reasonable scenarios for their uptake? So some of our analysis looks at what would be the year-on-year demand for these materials if that demand increased very slowly or if it increased very quickly. And so that kind of there's sort of relative analysis there in terms of what the embodied carbon benefits would be and the cost implications and things like that. But for the land use mapping, we actually looked at what would it mean if we built the whole region's annual housing need for something like 30,000 homes a year with these materials and uh, the kind of consequences for demand um, on woodland were fairly fairly limited actually. Um, we found that it was something like 8.6% of the current arable farming land within the whole of the northeastern Yorkshire, which would need to be farmed with hemp to supply the annual housing need of the region. So wow. kind of demand from new build construction. That doesn't count, for example, retrofit or maybe commercial buildings or cultural buildings. And that assumes everyone's building them with hemp bats, mm. which is not necessarily the case. Um, but yeah, it's, it represents a very small proportion of existing land. And what's really important is that that 8.6% isn't a sole use of land. That is a three-month blip. You know, that's one rotational crop in the rest of all the the cycles of cropping that you might anyway undertake on, on arable farming land. So it feels, again, like that is a a very easy transition to make. You know, we're not suggesting huge amounts of reforestation for that or like taking land which is dedicated to grazing and then suddenly dedicating it to growing hemp. That's like land which is already being farmed and you just find a different way to rehabilitate the soil rotationally using sometimes hemp as opposed to another crop. You know, and not all farms need to undertake that for it to be suddenly supplying a reasonably sized construction industry. Excellent. And then how about... um timber i mean is is it the idea that you know the timber would be grown in yorkshire for use in yorkshire yeah i think well it was like our scope was the whole of the northeast and yorkshire and actually if you look at their different not quite specialisms but maybe the existing track record within those different regions yorkshire is growing loads of grain crops the northeast uh, has within it a forest called Kielder Forest, which is fairly substantial. It's one of the biggest ones in the UK. And they have a very sizable amount of productive woodland, which supplies different um, timber product manufacturers in the UK. What we found within that context was that it was a really, really tiny proportion, like less than a percent um, of the of the, something like Kielder Forest would need to be dedicated to producing the structural frame timber for the houses that we looked at so again that doesn't look at other products that you might need um, but it's a a really really tiny proportion of a productive woodland and in the context of the northeastern yorkshire who already have policy or recommendations for policies to reforest and aforest huge proportions of that land that feels very doable Um, 
then it does necessitate a shift away from thinking about reforestation as being just uh, a rec- for recreational use. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the interesting and conflicting things about land use in the UK is the different expectations and demands we put on them, on, on, on our land. So, you know, there's a, I suppose it's like almost a difference between like um, Forestry England and the Woodland Trust, you know, like are those, the woods that we plant, are they carbon sinks that we look at? And are we without nature? Like is nature over there and the woods there? And we look at them from the outside because they're full of animals that we don't engage with. Or are we part of it because we're animals too? And we work with a sustainable woodland management kind of to have woodland, which is productive in terms of generating material, but also productive in terms of facilitating biodiversity. And, you know, it's like the difference between the hundred acre wood and then like rows of Sitka spruces that which are being used for construction and like how you find somewhere in between those two things. Um, that, I mean, that's made me, me think a little, I mean, I think everyone that listens to this podcast is probably uh, fairly up to up to date with you know how growing timber and working with timber is is good but it's have, did you see that thing recently i think it was a an insulate britain member on was it gb news or one of the awful yeah it's hilarious yeah. it's it's hilarious and like devastating that yeah uh yeah and, and the guy saying you're a carpenter you're bad for the environment because you're chopping down trees and using them um yeah. But yeah, I mean, he he definitely shows himself to be an educated chap when he suggests you can uh, you can grow concrete. I did, I just thought that it was so farcical that it was. I I hope that that man's views are not represented across mainstream media because they're ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there. Are, I suppose there are still like with anything, there are misconceptions about the impact that. That construction might have on the environment and what we're proposing will have on the environment and i guess that's why we talk so much about land use it's like trying to head off that before we get to those problems and trying to acknowledge them before they become issues and like put a bit of what we already know about the problems of what's been going on in the 20th century into what we plan to do in the 21st century well that is i mean that's just wonderful is there i mean is there anything else that we should talk about in terms of that that project, I think all that I've really got left to talk about is your your sort of work with with students. Um, uh, I don't know. I think for any other fun detail about Yorkshire in the northeast, you should maybe read the report. It's too long. Okay, to try and cover all of it. And uh, there's like lots of stuff, but um, I guess the the, the the most of the end of the report is about like all the regulatory frameworks which limit limit the way we build now yeah um, but and if we're going to talk about teaching maybe george you could talk about your students brief this year i think that would be really interesting yeah well i i teach with my teaching partner merve at a school called daa which is basically an architecture school and we basically look at um we use the kind of lens of material politics to look at how architecture and uh, the built environment are implicated in the kind of like uh, perpetuation of colonialism and extractive practices. And so we are particularly interested in like how identities are constructed 
um, through these material um, uh, processes and um, specifically looking at how uh, the global south is affected um, by that and how indigenous communities in uh, different regions of uh, of the global south are um, have been kind of um, have been affected by the project of colonialism and um, and it's kind of mega extractive uh, development projects which in a way are still kind of um, are still very much a kind of an apparatus, or these these projects are still an apparatus of of this project uh, of this of colonialism in some form. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what we look at, and we look at kind of we we try to look at it from the lens of uh, from the lens of materials, um, and um, we try to use materials as a tools as tools for kind of um implementing wider social political kind of economic agendas that's it in a nutshell uh so this is for you know an architectural you know teaching and what what is there some you know do your students create create a project at the end which is sort of yeah you know, imagining so a, a better way or Excuse my, like, yeah. No, no, I mean... Pretty dumb builder brain. uh, (laughs) um, I maybe don't have the right So, it's essentially what um, the the kind of work that we do is is research-based. And and we're really interested in, like, questioning the the role of the architect um, and and what, uh, what, what that is. So we look at it from the kind of like the, the tools that you you learn as an architect or the tools that you have, how you can use that um, to bring to light a particular issue um, and uh, or even to kind of propose uh, an alternative, you know, ecology or like an alternative kind of um, uh, world or, or, or imagine uh, uh, how it could be better. But I think it's the 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 it's not necessarily the proposition is not necessarily um what you can build or what this kind of alternative future can be um the proposition takes the form of um a research project and actually by um by a, a rigorous kind of methodology of looking at something and and really bringing to light a particular issue um that is very much situated in a in a political discourse that is uh, contemporary um that that in itself is propositional in a way i hope that makes sense what i was trying to say most mostly what we're interested in is how a project can expose or hold to account um a particular practice or like a particular system or or network of systems um, that are essentially exploitative and uh, at the expense of a particular group of people. I, that sounds, yeah, that sounds entirely uh, like a great thing to do and a great uh, a thing that I think is quite quite potentially well hidden. It is, and I think that's what makes it really exciting is that actually um, we don't really think of like if you if you take a material if you take a material and you kind of start to understand the entire network that exists around it um you begin to realize that actually 
this is uh, this exists um, the way that we use the material and the culture around it and the culture around building and the culture around uh, uh, consuming it and that may not necessarily just be a, a material in the construction industry it could also be you know a material in another that is used in another discipline um, that actually there is a there is a huge kind of uh, problematic um, in in this uh, in this entire infrastructure um, that is um, that is not obvious and what can you discover when you start to kind of unpack this this thread um, and who you know who can you who needs to be um, held to account uh, for that it's very it <laughs> I suppose in a way it's very immaterial. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we're we're in the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's quite. I think it's quite different um, in terms of output from the from the work that Summer and Paloma students do. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, the further you zoom out, the closer they kind of meet in a way. <laughs> um, and I think that's that's maybe where uh, where there is an overlap. Yeah. Yeah, it's really nice as well because your students have um, longer, I think, to address these problems. So you you teach students for like a whole academic year, whereas a lot of the work that Palermo and I do tends to be for a few months, like taking a module on. So you've got the time, I think, oh, the students have the time to like look into the all the issues around something, and I think that really complements what we do, which is kind of short and sweet <laughs> and quick fire, like testing and working with project materials and building and stuff and yeah i'm really excited to see what the students can present us at the end of the year yeah is there going to be some sort of um you know exhibition or probably if if things continue the way they are i suppose or if we continue to interact with each other in real life there may be <laughs> um yeah <laughs> Probably, but I think <laughs> most of the kind of the the work that they do is exists in some form digitally, um, and and uh, and it will kind of sit in a kind okay. of school projects review website kind of thing. Great. Well, I look forward to, to seeing that. Um, and then Saba is yeah. What what you're what you're doing um, what and doing work you're doing. I guess you know um, molding the the future minds of, of molding the future minds. <laughs> Lots of moulding. Uh, Paloma and I have been teaching together for about three years now, maybe a bit longer. And we teach at Central St Martins. We've also taught at the Bartlett, and previously we both taught at the London Met, which is was called the CAS once. Um, and the work that we do with our students tends to be um, quite pragmatic. We work a lot where we can with our hands. We really enjoy making and also sharing that joy of making with our students so getting them involved in, in building things and, and testing materials out the course we teach at central st martin's is for the master's students and it's a construction detailing module so we work with them for seven weeks to design and build a thing um so one year we built a small family dwelling um or kind of one bedroom tight a small one bedroom house and this year we worked with our students on a project called Carbon Copies, which was just exhibited recently. The exhibition closed at a place called House of Anessa in central London. And the work was looking really at 
I suppose, iconic residential typologies that were built in over the last few centuries in, in London, particularly. So looking from like the terraced house to um, Alexander Road Estate in Camden. So buildings which are known for being kind of exemplary examples of residential life uh, from the kind of traditional to the contemporary. And we looked at those buildings in terms of what they were made of. So our students did an embodied carbon analysis of a single residential unit. And then we asked our students to propose what they could be made of if they were made of bio-based materials and what the implications would be for, I suppose, the way those buildings expressed themselves and what they looked and felt like. And so then our students ran the embodied carbon calculations again. And they all looked at different materials. So they visited different factories and sites of production before they designed their copies, essentially. So some of them went to the brick factory at HG Matthews. Some of them went to the sawmill, um, uh, East Brothers sawmill. Um, some of them went to quarries and places where stone was extracted. And then they built one-to-one fragments of their copies. So that was really exciting. So there was a few weeks when the studio space at Central St. Martins was just full of clay dust. It took months, Great. It took absolutely months to get rid of. <laughs> the cleaning <laughs> team are still upset with us. Welcome to my um, world. Yeah. <laughs> And they had a block press, so they were like making their own clay and straw um, blocks and some students made their own round earth. And uh, there was a team that had, they redesigned the terraced, um, a brick terraced house um, using a fired brick outer skin and then a cavity of clay and hemp and then an inner of adobe unfired bricks. And there was a team of one side of the wall, they were building bricklaying traditional bricks on the other side, they were bricklaying. Um, kind of adobe and they were sort of racing each other up the up the fragment and they were building it was really great um and then all their copies had to meet building standards today so it was also looking at like how those buildings had been or might have been very high in body carbon but also didn't really perform very well so they had to improve the thermal efficiency of their proposals too it was just great it was really fun they made some amazing extraordinary things quite wild um but yeah, it was, it was really great. We've published it now as a book. So through Central St. Martins, it's a, a small print-on-demand publication that people can buy. In order. Oh, great. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll chuck a link to that in the show notes. Um, I mean, that to me, that sort of what you've just described, it seems like what architecture school should be all about in my mind. I mean, I'm brick laying. Well, not, not just bricklaying, <laughs> but, you know, actually getting hands-on uh, you know, holding materials and understanding, you know, making things, seeing details in in real life. Um, yeah, I I know that architecture is a lot more than that. And maybe I don't want to give give all the architects the skills because that's <laughs> doing me out of a job. Um, yeah, wow. I, it seems like a, a really positive positive thing to be doing. Mm. Both of you. Actually, I think architects are terrible makers. Jeffrey. <laughs> it depends. I mean, I'm not going to say that we are great, but there are, I know some that are very good. But it's a, it's less common than we like to think it is, I'd say. That's probably the true. But like, like our, we like, as a species, <laughs> architects, we like to think we're really good at yeah. making. But uh, there are a few people that are really gifted at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that's also, that's not the point. I mean, well, with teaching, I think that's not the point. It's like learning where things go wrong and how to adapt to them. That's one of the fun things. And also you learn, maybe you just learn the respect 
for a skill that you don't have or that you yeah. know someone can do better. That's really important too. It's like, I mean, I made some terrible things for five years, uh, like things made of wood and plaster and concrete. And I learned in the end, it's like we were saying the other day, George, you learn in the end that you should pay someone well to do the thing well <laughs> because you're not going to make it as good as they are. Um, that is literally the conversation we had a few days ago, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. This is yeah, music to my ears. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Thank you again to Summer and George for talking with me. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, then definitely have a listen to episode 62, where Summer and George are talking about the Waste Age exhibition in London, uh, which I think there is still just about time to get to see. If you are quick, um, I'd also recommend uh, episode 44 with Chris Magwood and episode 37 with Janalan Lomas. If this episode was tickling you, then those ones will definitely be your thing. Um, that is all for me. Um, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope that you are really well and settling into 2022. I suspect it's going to be a bumpy one, but uh, here's hoping. Um, and as always, uh, please do share this episode if you have enjoyed it. Uh, and maybe consider doing a Kate Brown and giving a nice little roundup of the podcast, maybe with some favourite episodes. Oh, that'll get us on the way to the, the magic 200,000. Okay. Big love to you all. See you soon.